You're listening to The Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. It's a pleasure to uh, welcome back Jack Kelly, who is a historian and novelist. How are you doing, Jack? Uh, great, Bob. It's uh, great to be with you. Uh, Jack Kelly has a new book out called Heaven's Ditch. His uh, previous book, uh, or one previous book, called Band of Giants, was about the American Revolution. We uh, talked with him about that. Uh, Jack Kelly was born in upstate New York, uh, in Ontario, New York, near Palmyra, which uh, figures in the the story we're going to be talking with him about today, uh, on the banks of the Erie Canal. He now lives and works in the Hudson River Valley. And the book, published by St. Martin's Press, is called Heaven's Ditch. Be careful how you say that. Heaven's Ditch, God, Gold, and murder on the Erie Canal. And this is a book about the Erie Canal, Jack, but it's really about a whole lot more. Yeah, I, um, as you mentioned, you know, I, I grew up uh, a few miles from the canal, and I have a lot of memories from not only from of the canal and when barges still went through the locks up there, but also of the, um, the some of the religious movements that I talk about in the book. So I wanted to give a uh, of the reader a feel for the importance of the canal in American history, the great achievement that that was the building of it, and also about this this sort of visionary energy that broke out along the canal as the canal sort of smashed through into the frontier and brought civilization up there. People got a lot of weird ideas, and um, they broke away from the old... Uh, moors of new england and the settled east and they made up their own religions and they were you know generally very creative in a lot of ways so it's a it's a fascinating story to me well all the stories are fascinating but but really i mean what was say the connection between the erie canal and and the finding uh, the founding of the mormon religion which happened out there well uh, one thing that i try to point out is that a lot of these um uh, movements I talk about in the book uh, are connected by the theme of youth. It was really a youth movement because the people that went to the frontier were tended to be young people, the, the adventurous, uh, willing to take a chance and go out there. Uh, the, the, when Rochester was, the canal went right through the city of Rochester, and Rochester became the first boom town when the canal arrived. And three quarters of the population of Rochester was under 30. So it was a it was a it was a whole population of young people, and they um, they were willing to experiment. They were willing to uh, try out new ideas, new religions, and one of the most radical of the new religions of these sort of do-it-yourself religions was the Mormons. It was created by one man, uh, totally from scratch, just um, either out of his imagination, if you want to look at it that way, or through divine revelation, as he said. Uh, he was able to create the 600-page Book of Mormon and um, and then build a religion mm-hmm. around it. I, I think you do a good job, and I don't know what Mormons think of it, but they uh, endured or almost rejoiced in the Book of Mormon somehow. So I have an idea they'll be cool with what you've written, uh, uh, Jack. But I thought you put it in a very interesting context. I hadn't really thought of it because you talk about— uh, young Joseph Smith, I believe he was the, a junior, wasn't he, Joseph yes, Smith exactly. Jr., uh, and his, how his whole family had moved out uh, to Palmyra, and they'd had 
terrible luck or, or whatever you want to want to call it and uh, always were trying to keep the wolf uh, from the door but Joseph Smith uh, finding those uh, tablets from the angel Moroni I mean it was just one of uh, I think you wrote, you indicate in the book one of many uh, people out there who who did things like that. I mean, there were people that uh, were always searching for for buried treasure, for example, or or to, to hear the spirits speak to them. Yeah, and you know, Joseph Smith had actually started as a, a guide for these uh, treasure hunts. I, for some reason, uh, people even 400 miles inland in upstate New York, had the idea that maybe Captain Kidd had come up there and buried his treasure. And they would go out, and usually at night, and they would go out and look for it and dig. And he, uh, Joseph Smith acted sort of like a dowser. He was able to uh, detect where the treasure might be buried under the earth. And I think it was, uh, it was kind of a sort of a folk uh, spirituality involved. And also it was just for fun, you know, they would they would go out at night and dig, and they didn't find much, but they they had a lot of fun. They would drink, and um, and then you know he found his actual gold himself uh, through a revelation they had that was buried up on a hill near his home. Mm. Let's go back to the canal. Uh, the um, inspiration from the canal. Uh, the, you write, uh, comes from a, a man who was a struggling, I think he was a wheat farmer out in uh, western New York, and he had the, this great crop of wheat, but he couldn't get it to market, and he was just so frustrated. Yeah, the, I think it's it gives a good context for what the canal was all about, to imagine what the, um, the situation was there in terms of transportation before the canal, before the, the canal was started in 1817. And before that, the roads were terrible. The, 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 there was um, almost all transportation was on water, and all the cities in the country were either on a river or on a on a coast, or had access to the coast. So the inland uh, western New York was much more fertile than New England, uh, but the cost of transportation made it so that it was not economical to transport the wheat and flour down to the markets, which were in the east. And so he had a almost like a vision of the canal. He saw the if he could connect Lake Erie and the Hudson River, you would have a, a continuous waterway all the way to New York City and then to up and down the coast, and it would be a, 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 an incredible boon. Uh, the problem was that uh, digging a ca- canal through 360 miles when the longest canal in the country was only 29 miles at that time um, was an enormous challenge. And uh, uh, Jesse Hawley had the idea, and then other others took it and went with it. And uh, it was really a very audacious project, uh, and it's amazing to think of and think of it today, you know, that the New York State Legislature would take a risk like that and... Um, and just you know, go for it. Yeah. and they did, and and it worked. Yeah, as you, you say, it was audacious for its day. You know, a canal hundreds of miles long, and and really, you know, usually canals then, I guess, for what you're saying, there were there were a few miles long, twenty nine, thirty. Um, but they did go for it in, in New York State, and it was a New York State a project. I thought I was interested in that. Of course, as they would today, they went to the federal government and they and they said, nah, we're, we're not too uh, interested. And even in 
other parts of New York they weren't too interested, right? When this finally came down the pike and uh, uh, DeWitt Clinton, I think, eventually becomes governor and his name is associated with uh, the canal, it was hard to convince even New York City that this was going to work. Yeah, that was that is an interesting uh, 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 twist on it because, uh, like with all uh, public works projects, it's the, the two questions are who benefits and who pays, and the areas and the people that live in areas that don't feel they're going to benefit um, don't want to pay. That's essentially what it comes down to, and there were a lot of people in New York City who just thought it would be it would benefit. Uh, Albany and the points west, but not have much effect on them. And they pro- in in the end, they were proven to be very wrong about that because the Erie Canal really made New York City, which was a relatively small city at, at the time the canal was built, and um, it, you know expanded, became the greatest port in America. And also the financial arrangements around the canal. Uh, turned New York into the financial center of the country, which it still remains today. So it was uh, it had an enormous impact on New York City, and they eventually had to eat their words and agree that it was a, a great boon to them. So when they finally start building the canal, I believe you said it's around 1817, they start out by Rome, 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 New York, because it basically because it was the easiest place to start. It was flat land, right? Correct. There, there's two very long, uh, 60, 70 mile long stretches of the canal that are um, that they needed no locks because they were totally flat. And uh, the area around Rome was one of them. The other one's on the other side of Rochester. And so they started. Well, we'll start there. Um, we won't have to build any locks. It'll be simple. And we'll try out the various techniques there before we have to get into the more technical, uh, difficult aspects of going up and down uh, levels by putting in locks and moving barges up that way. And you put in a story that as they get close to where they got to put in some locks, it's sort of a, it's like a technology race. They have no cement. They don't know how to make cement or some or a bonding compound that's waterproof. Right. The, the, the Romans had, uh, it, you know, we still see the Roman aqueducts and their seawalls that the Romans built 2,000 years ago. But the, the formula for that type of cement had actually been lost all through the Middle Ages, and, and it was only beginning to be rediscovered in Europe at the time uh, to make a cement that could withstand being underwater and not, not deteriorate underwater. So... Um, it was not going to be feasible to import cement from Europe. Uh, so they had to find a way of making the cement. And they started digging the canal. They really didn't know how they were going to get that cement. And uh, they used their ingenuity to uh, finally discover a type of rock or a type of limestone that they could cook into that type of cement. So it was uh, very fortuitous. That, in fact, that limestone happened to be right on the path of the canal, so it was even better. And um, I'm familiar with the canal in the east where we have the Mohawk River, and now the Mohawk River is the canal. It's canalized, as they say. But that wasn't the case in the first of the Erie Canals to be built, was it? Right. The, one of the problems in that era was that the, the uh, Mohawk River does go through a, at a place called Little Falls. It goes through the Appalachian Mountains. It's one of the unique gaps in the Appalachian Mountains, so it gives access to the west. But it was too shallow, too many rapids, 
and too unreliable. The level would go up and down uh, for transport and anything but essentially a large rowboat. And um, so they had, when they built the Erie Canal, they had to build another artificial waterway right along the path of the Mohawk River uh, to allow the barges to go smoothly up and down there. And then it wasn't until uh, in the part of the 20th century that the uh, what they call the Barge Canal was built and incorporated the Mohawk River by putting in dams and then locks at every dam so that the water level was held up. And another part of the canal that I find fascinating, or your description of it, uh, maybe horrendous is a better word, is when uh, I've, I know it from just driving out to western New York or other places on the thruway. You go through the Montezuma Preserve, and that's miles and miles of, of marshland. It was very hard to build anything there. Yeah, that was that was one of the great uh, obstacles to uh, simply because if you you know you dig you can dig through uh, the muck and uh, the next day you come back and all the muck has slid back into your the ditch and you have to start all over again and they did that many times and they had to put in drainage and they had to you know uh, bring in uh, dirt and gravel to build up the embankments for the um, canal and it was a uh, horrendous experience, particularly the mosquitoes, they said, were were particularly vicious in the Montezuma Swamp. So a lot of men died digging that uh, from various fevers mm. and uh, illnesses. Yes, yeah, you mentioned that. That's, that. Is that where most, I mean, people died building the Erie Canal. Is that where most of them died, was out in the Montezuma? Well, the... Uh, the, the um, Safety uh, precautions were minimal, let's put it that way, all along the canal. And when they got out to the uh, areas in the western part uh, above Lockport, they used a lot of black powder to, to blast the, um, the, you know, the break through the rock. And uh, there were quite a number of men that got killed doing that, too. Mm. And it was just, uh, I think probably most, most um, of the workers died of disease. Plus, you have to remember that they most of the workers drank while they were working. So, mm-hmm. you would be standing next to somebody swinging a pick who was uh, had drunk a half a bottle of whiskey that day. Uh, also, presented a little bit of danger. And we're talking with Jack Kelly. His latest book, "Heaven's Ditch: God, Gold, and Murder," on the uh, Erie Canal. It's published by St. Martin's Press. Just published in uh, 2016. And I'd like to go back to the, uh, dare I say, the religious aspect of the book, which, again, I found uh, uh, very fascinating. All the, it, what, what you do is, well, you well know because you did it, is you have these chapters where you introduce sort of uh, a different character and then you start following them in, in sequence, if that uh, makes any sense. You go back to the building of the canal, then you bring in uh, maybe more on uh, Joseph Smith. And we've talked some about Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon re- religion, out, uh, for, and he was from Palmyra. But there's there are many other religious uh, folks here who were um, active in upstate New York at that time. Tell us about evangelist Charles Finney. Yeah, the... the um I usually point out that the canal brought in an environment of the port city into the interior. So a lot of the towns and cities that, that grew up along the canal 
were very raucous, uh, like any port. They, they had a lot of rough characters and transients going through, and there was drinking and fighting and uh, petty crime and so forth. And the people of Rochester had a particular reputation for being a, a, a raucous type of city. So the respectable people of Rochester decided to bring this, the greatest evangelist of the era, Charles Grandison Finney, to uh, conduct a revival of religion in the city. And Finney was the Billy Graham of that day, only more so. He was uh, extraordinarily famous and uh, uh, a very uh, effective preacher. And uh, he came into Rochester and stayed there six months. He preached almost every night. He would go around door to door during the day until everybody in town was talking about religion. And it was kind of fashionable to be saved and to have this conversion experience and that particular revival spread through much of the country and in some ways we're still living in the afterglow of that of that um what some call the uh, second great awakening this was like the the culmination of the second great awakening uh which introduced a kind of emotional evangelical faith into america and um it's still Today, I think there's one one out of every four Americans identifies as an evangelical Christian. So uh, Finney was enormously uh, influential. He also brought in a lot of reform movements. Uh, in the, you know, I talked about the drinking. The drinking was there was a lot of heavy drinking uh, in the 1820s and 30s, and the um, the temperance movement that eventually became a prohibition movement uh, was started by Finney. The uh, uh, he he became an abolitionist, and the uh, anti-slavery movement came out of these revivals. So it was uh, it had beyond the religion, it also had a, a great effect on uh, on various reform movements uh, that many of them started along the Erie Canal. Mm. What, what I mean, yes, today we, we certainly still know the power of of religion, but it seemed. I mean, my thought would be that in those days, like say the eighteen twenties, thirties, forties, I mean. It somehow it just seems almost well, not impossible, but but it was really something that all these people and all the, the these uh, when Finney'd come to town, you know, there's no TV that he's using, no radio or podcasts or whatever. He just uh, got people going. I mean, I, I wonder what it was like. Well, uh, it's interesting you mentioned that, Bob, because one thing you realize when you know read about that era is. There was a great uh, hunger for entertainment of any kind or any kind of spectacle. And Finney's uh, type of preaching really came out of the camp meetings, which these preachers would ha have a central meeting somewhere out on the frontier. And people would travel for days to get to this meeting. They had, some of them would attract 10,000 people. And they were uh, like a, the Woodstock Festival of that time. Uh, just people coming together in a great emotional outpouring of spiritual energy and uh, many preachers and many people being converted and uh, kind of really wild scenes. But uh, any bit of entertainment, anything that promised a spectacle, people would uh, travel a long way because you had to figure these people on the frontier would go a year or two years and all they saw was their farm uh, occasional visitor, maybe once in a few, every few months, somebody would stop by. And other than that, they they were had an absolutely um, mm. 
just a, their life was a grind of chores and trying to make a make a living out in the frontier. So uh, anything that promised a little excitement would uh, draw a big crowd. Well, you you mentioned entertainment. Who was Sam Patch? Well, yes, uh, he, he, uh, he's one of the characters I particularly uh, was fond of in that era. He he was one of the first uh, factory workers in America. He he'd started in a textile factory as a child. And a lot of the textile workers were children in those days uh, when he was eight years old, and worked. You know, they would work twelve, fourteen hours a day in these very uh, dangerous jobs inside water-driven textile factories and he got fed up with it and he decided to become a um, really one of the first uh, professional daredevils in America and his his thing was to jump over particularly over waterfalls and he would get up on a platform he jumped into Niagara Falls and he uh, came to Rochester he brought his act to Rochester and jumped over there's a almost 100 foot high falls right in the middle of Rochester and he would jump over from the top down into the into the water Thanks. pool at the bottom, and he uh, he was successful. He he made some money, and again, a lot of thousands of people came to see him. And uh, so he thought he'd do uh, do another jump, and uh, unfortunately, that jump was unsuccessful, and he uh, passed into history. But uh, very interesting character. No, but he jumped into Niagara Falls and survived. Yeah, he would uh, not over the falls. There, he built a platform um, about a, a hundred feet high at the base of the falls uh, and jumped into yeah. the um, into the um, sort of rapids at the bottom of the falls. One of the secrets was that it's actually much easier to jump into water that's that's sort of boiling up from the from the bo- at the bottom of the falls because it's not as um, it's softer. Let's put it that way. It's not as it's not like hitting mm-hmm. uh, still water where you're hitting a smooth surface. You're hitting a uh, combination of water and air, so it's uh, actually easier. But it looked very uh, spectacular. Now, I think in the Charles Finney section or some of the chapters I've read about him, one thing that uh, occurred to me in in your book and you describe how it was they kept going. I mean, this was, what, an eight-year project building the canal? But because they started, let's say, in the Utica-Rome area, already they were getting some benefit from it. And some of these towns started to prosper more, and that encouraged more investment in the canal. Yeah, the the, the canal was opened in sections, uh, um, and they started, they had the middle section and then finished off the eastern section so you could go from uh, almost the Syracuse area down to the Hudson River. And that became very successful almost immediately. Uh, they didn't need to have the connection to Lake Erie, uh, and people started using it. That helped uh, not only uh, provide some income from the tolls, but it also encouraged a lot, a lot of investment in the canal. People bought the state bonds that were being offered because uh, they saw that it was going to be a success. When they were started, everybody was very skeptical that would they would, able, would ever be able to really pull it off. But uh, as they finished each section, uh, it became more and more apparent that it was going to be a success. Hmm. And back to another uh, story, uh, the, the story of William Morgan, which I believe you uh, call the, one of the first 
or the very first crime of the century. He was a man who, like so many people in the the founding era of America, uh, became a Mason, but he turned against the Masons and, and wrote a book about them, right? Yeah, he... Um was a, a disgruntled mason he he uh, i think just because of his personality or something they they uh, masons had decided to uh, eliminate him from their roles and so he partly for revenge and partly because he thought it might become a bestseller like every writer i suppose imagines their books going to be a bestseller he wrote a book that revealed the secrets of the masons and that um the Masons out in Western New York, who were a little bit rustic, uh, let's say, they were not uh, sophisticated uh, Masons like you would have back in New York City, but they were, they took a lot of the um, rigmarole of the Freemasons very seriously, and they didn't like the fact that he was publishing this book, and they, they kidnapped him. And he was taken up to a fort on the Niagara River and never seen again. And it's still a mystery to this day as to what happened to him, but it became, a, a, like you say, the crime of the century. It was in all the newspapers, and it was you know, for months the newspapers would cover it. Where is Morgan? What happened to Morgan? And people began to turn on the Masons and imagine that they were going, they were trying to take over the government. They were going to install an aristocracy, which was not true at all. But that uh, feeling got going among. Uh, people in upstate New York and along the canal, and they could always point to this Morgan as the proof that the, there was something up, something fishy about the, the Masons. And the anti-Masonic movement became a, a big political movement. They, uh, they invented the presidential nominating committee and ran a candidate for president in 1832, um, then quickly died off. It was, there was really nothing no substance to what they were, their, their, their basic cause, but they, they were pretty influential in their day. Well, again, back to the canal and its uh, commercial effect. You've uh, addressed this already, but Rochester was a boomtown. I mean, of all the, the now cities of upstate New York, like Syracuse and Buffalo, I mean, right, and, and others, I mean, Rochester was the one that really benefited the most? Uh, I think you'd have to say, well, all this, all the cities along there, Syracuse was born out of the canal. There was no city or, or even a town at Syracuse, and that became a, a pretty prosperous town. There was a big salt industry there. Rochester had the, they became the, the biggest flour milling city in the world when the canal came through. And then Buffalo became a big port for the uh, all the shipments coming in from the rest of the Great Lakes. So all those cities benefited enormously from the canal. And it just you know it showed the the potential that was there that was being blocked because of these bad roads and the the, the cost of transportation. Um, and as soon as the canal came through, they every one of those cities mm-hmm. flourished. Now um, I don't know if you cover this in the book, because again I haven't finished it, but. Um, what about today? Uh, I still love the, you know, here where we, I, we live in uh, the Capital District. You know, the canal is there in the river. It's used for recreational traffic, some commercial traffic. But right now it seems like it's uh, something the state is uh, almost reluctantly supporting. Well, it's it, it's still, you know, supported. And you, you can take a, a cabin cruiser and go through every lock along the way, as many people do. And there's... T- tour boats that go up there, but 
as you point out, it's mostly recreational uh, traffic. What happened was that uh, in 1959, they opened the St. Lawrence Seaway, which was uh, gave ocean-going ships access down the St. Lawrence River to Lake Ontario, and then through the Welland Canal, which is in Canada, to Lake Erie, and then from Lake Erie they could go to all the mm. Great Lakes. So there was no that took away a lot of the commercial traffic on the Erie Canal uh, and turned it into mostly a, a, a recreational resource, which it's taken quite a while, but I think that a lot of the communities along the canal are seeing the, the possibilities the of, of well, well, Jack, we're just out of time. I thank you very much for joining us. We've been talking with Jack Kelly, his latest book, Heaven's Ditch, God, Gold, and Murder on the Erie Canal. It's published by St. Martin's Press. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. This is Bob Cudmore.